Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. This is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. How are you, Chuck? Claudine, it's really great to be in the office with you and I continue to adjust to office life. I'm cycling in every day, braving the buses and the taxis and the scooters on the streets of London. And I understand that you made it in on two wheels today too. Oh my gosh. Yes. First time doing the commute to work on a bike. I think I'll do it again, but it was a bit scary. Chuck, otherwise I've been enjoying doing a lot of recruitment at the moment. Control is advertising a huge amount of vacancies at the moment, which is really exciting catching up on, on a lot of months where we weren't able to, to bring new talent into the business. And I'm really enjoying the opportunity to meet new people. I've forgotten quite how much I enjoyed that. And of course, none of us have had much opportunity to do that over the last 18 months, have we? Claudine, you're absolutely right. So we've had a little bit of a plug for our HR department here in the Global Insight podcast, which is fine because I think that while we are recruiting quite actively, we're getting an incredible response from job candidates. And so good luck to our HR department. But the fact that we're doing more in the office and more in person doesn't mean that we've completely transitioned away from our electronic lives. Just earlier this week, as part of the company's pride celebrations, we had an online panel discussion where we talked about a more inclusive workplace and both the business argument for inclusion in the workplace and, of course, the moral and ethical argument for a more inclusive workplace. Today, we're going to talk about some of the legal changes to the LGBT plus landscape around the world. And we're going to start with a discussion of LGBT plus rights in Africa, recent improvements, and where a little bit more work is necessary, or in fact, quite a lot more work is necessary around the continent. Africa team in the last few months have picked up quite a few controversies that were making headlines in places as varied as Ghana, Senegal, Uganda. We're also getting some interest from our clients, actually. So that got us focusing on that issue of of LGBT plus rights in Africa and and the feeling that public attitudes towards homosexuality are are very slow to change. And so we decided to take stock of, of the landscape, both from the legal point of view but also public sentiment towards LGBT plus issues on the continent. That was Vincent Rouget, an associate director in our Africa practice based in London. Vincent, take us across the landscape in Africa for LGBT plus individuals. I mean, generally, the the trajectory hasn't been very positive at all, actually. State protections for LGBT plus people remain weak overall. I think that's that's the first thing to say. Same-sex sexual relations remain illegal in 32 out of 54 African countries. And that number is is going down very slowly compared to other regions. There's a few bright spots. We've seen a few countries in Southern Africa, Botswana, Mozambique, Angola, where same-sex relations have been decriminalized recently. They're few and they're actually quite far between. And what's perhaps even more striking is the continued high levels of intolerance that we're seeing you know, across age groups, across the urban rural divide as well. There is still very high levels of, of anti-LGBT plus sentiment that is quite generalized across the continent. What lies behind that trend, Vincent? So one of the main factors, perhaps the main factor is religious conservatism. 
we have seen conservative strands in both Islam and Christianity really grow in quite a lot of places on the continent, sometimes with the help of foreign funding, but also the fact that traditional religious orders were losing a bit of popularity. And in places like Ghana or Senegal, where we have seen recently, you know, LGBT plus related controversies, these conservative religious groups have actually been quite powerful lobbies that even, you know, leaders that are on other social issues quite progressive haven't been able to defy or challenge. At the same time, whipping up anti-LGBT plus sentiment is also quite a useful political currency for, for many leaders. We've seen this for a while, you know, we've had some tabloids sometimes that are calling out, exposing opponents as gays. That has long been a smear tactic that we've seen in some countries. But more recently, we're also seeing this anti-LGBT plus rhetoric also form part of a, of a rhetoric from some leaders that just don't like the West and that are trying to reject any kind of interference from Western countries. And they are merging hostility towards LGBT plus people with hostility towards, you know, pro-democracy or pro-good governance messages coming from Western donor countries. Vincent, we're talking about social issues. We're talking about cultural issues. We're talking about religious issues with a bit of politics laid over all of this. But explain why companies need to think about this. So companies need to think about this, you know, both for the safety of their own staff, but also from a reputational point of view. If you think about staff safety, you know, obviously you do have a lot of countries where same-sex sexual relations are still criminalized. We haven't seen that much enforcement of these legislation, but actually there, there seems to be a trend towards more arrests of LGBT plus people, particularly when they try to assemble. That doesn't pose such a risk for foreign travelers when they come on short-term visits to countries, but it is genuinely a risk for local staff, for national staff of these countries. And so it is something to think about for companies, you know, about how they can create a supportive environment for their LGBT plus staff that may face a genuine risk of prosecution and arrest in, in the countries where they work. From a reputational point of view, there is more and more scrutiny, you know, coming from particularly the Western publics about companies and where they operate in general. And the country's record on LGBT plus right is also becoming an issue that, that you know, activist groups in general, wider public will, will be looking at. And so we've seen a few companies taking a little bit of criticism sometimes where they have invested in countries where anti-LGBT plus feelings have made headlines or that have recently passed hostile legislations towards LGBT plus people. President Biden, just after coming to office earlier this year, issued a pretty strong statement of the intent he had to ensure that the human rights of LGBTQI plus people are protected. And so the US certainly is going to be paying close attention to how different governments around the world are treating these communities. Do you anticipate, Vincent, that there could be any sanctions implications for parts of Africa that you've been looking at? Biden, in his memorandum on the subject earlier this year, did actually mention that there was a possibility of financial sanctions being imposed on countries which were seen to have violated the human rights of LGBT plus communities. I think, you know, realistically, it's, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to see sanctions against African countries that criminalize homosexuality. I think, you know, sanctions in general as a foreign policy tool are pretty hard to deploy. They'll be even harder to deploy against some of the U.S.'s closest foreign allies on the continent that doesn't exactly have the best of, of record. 
And it probably exposed, you know, the U.S. government to potentially accusations of inconsistency with other countries elsewhere. The news of you know, the, that memo and the threat of sanctions prompted some rebuttals already from from several you know, African policymakers. I think the a minister in Ghana that at the time was you know, making headlines for the closure of an LGBT plus community center pretty much yeah, rebuffed the statement saying this, this is not going to affect us in any way. It's unlikely that you know, the threat of sanction or those efforts will prompt changes in legislation. What is more likely is that after several years of disengagement from the U.S. in promoting human rights in general and LGBT plus during the Trump administration, we're probably going to see a more concerted effort and perhaps a higher priority from U.S. embassies in these countries in, in the promotion of LGBT plus rights, in the defense of civil society groups that are involved in this. And that is probably a positive evolution in terms of, of supporting civil society groups and activist groups that are that are fighting for these issues locally. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment. But if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. We've just launched our 2021 Capacity to Combat Corruption Index, which looks at the fight against corruption in Latin America and what it means for business. Homophobia is by no means restricted to Africa, and the sanctions risk too is one that will be something we will be watching closely with respect to many environments around the world. Claudine, you could basically break the rest of the world, without making too many generalizations here, but you could basically break the rest of the world down into a small number of categories. There will be a small but growing group of countries that have LGBT plus friendly legislation where there are specific prohibitions against discriminating against members of the LGBT plus community, say, in housing or in employment or in the delivery of health care. And of course, these also usually include countries that have marriage equality. You can also look at a group of countries that don't treat this issue at all, either because they haven't yet or the laws that they have on the books are not specific in their application towards the LGBT plus community. That vagueness, that omission, is actually a source of weakness and, and of some controversy, because you may think that laws apply to everybody, but in some countries, if it's not made specific, then discrimination usually sneaks in. And then the third group of countries, just as Vincent has mentioned in Africa, but in other regions of the world, the third group of countries has laws that are specifically hostile to the LGBT plus community. The issue for companies is that they will have a footprint most likely in each and every one of those types of countries. One of the ways that companies manage an incredibly complex global footprint like that is by adopting strong ESG principles. As companies consider the move from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, they're thinking about how they can better serve their employees, but also how they can more productively and thoughtfully engage with the larger stakeholder group that they work with in their operating environments. Diversity and inclusion, including LGBT plus rights, are a big part of this. That was Maria Knapp, partner and lead on our ESG consulting globally.
Maria, remember the conversation that we were having yesterday when we were sitting out in the front of the office and, and, and you put this fantastic framing around things about balancing country and company, laws and values, and internal pressures and external pressures. Companies are faced with unprecedented questions when it comes to setting their own value statement around social issues, around diversity and inclusion and LGBT+. They're responding to several triggers. So there's been investor pressure over a number of years now. There's increasing kind of regulatory pressure in terms of how companies align themselves with different frameworks. Companies are also trying to get on the front foot and set a positive, proactive tone to how they're engaging with their employees around issues like diversity and inclusion and social rights and playing a, an overall kind of positive impact role with regards to their own kind of societal engagement. And that's really challenging because how do you get your head around what the issues are, how you need to prioritize them? There are a couple of different ways to look at it. Kind of cutting it up into different streams is really helpful. So thinking about kind of what is internal to the company, employee policies, HR policies, et cetera, and then thinking about the different environments that you work in, how you impact on and engage with the stakeholders in those environments. A second tier is really thinking about many companies have the, the advantage and disadvantage to be responding to or aligning with very specific ESG reporting frameworks. And those ESG reporting frameworks helpfully tend to nuance between sectors and industries. The SASB, the GRI reporting frameworks, they'll differentiate the, the kind of key issues for different sectors and industries. But diversity, inclusion, LGBT+, these tend to be kind of pretty pervasive across all industry sectors. Nevertheless, they're useful frameworks that you can kind of use as a guide to what are the issues that are going to be the most material what are the issues that are going to be most impactful in terms of your own kind of good governance standards and the way that investors and other external stakeholders are assessing you? Looking at those as one way to prioritize the issues. But I think it's really important for baseline companies to recognize that there is a nuance and that they may be tempted to set standards, set a value statement, and set KPIs even globally. That's exceedingly difficult given the nuances that you've alluded to. Maria, let's unpack that a little bit. Companies are going to face internal pressures from their employees and other stakeholders, and they're going to face external pressures from the countries that they're working in, the legislative frameworks that they're all coping with, and from analysts, activists, and the kind of people who are constantly scrutinizing a company's behavior. How does a company navigate and negotiate those two sources of pressure? It's exceedingly difficult to satisfy everyone. In fact, the starting point for many companies is to set a kind of statement of values. And they can build a program around that. And a program can be quite technical, it can be quite nuanced, it can include KPIs, et cetera. But the starting point really is to set the tone at the global level. And for multinationals, it's difficult to set a global tone that will be very challenging to meet in certain countries. And as with every 
ESG or sustainability statement, it's very tempting to make a statement that's, you know, really bold and, and forward thinking and challenges expectations and sets a company out as a visionary. And I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out where they stand on that. But it's very important for companies to consider, you know, what's an honest statement that they can live by. Many companies see it as a competitive advantage to be really pushing the envelope. They'll need to not be in breach of that statement as soon as they've made it. You know, as soon as you've made that statement, people are going to judge you against it. The other thing is when setting a, a program, kind of assess yourself against standards, objectives, KPIs as a company, which your investors, customers, and, and wider stakeholder base will be assessing you against. It's important also to recognize when you're measuring progress, where you're making progress, where you aren't. A lot of companies are just still figuring this out. They haven't got the recipe right. There are companies that you can look to and, and take inspiration from, but it's very specific for each company. So ultimately, that kind of honesty bit and holding yourself to account and being okay with acknowledging some of the limitations and challenges is, is a really key part of how companies can report on their own progress, on their own objectives, and be very vocal about that in a way that is effective, that's honest. And that I think broader stakeholder groups can really kind of buy into much more. The challenge or the flip side of that is the limitations in terms of companies' ability to affect the environment around them and where they draw the line when it comes to their own risk appetite. And, you know, Claudine, I know you've been working on a model for social risk ratings at the country level and sector industry level which I think is a, is a really helpful methodology and framing for those kinds of questions for companies to kind of be able to implement something consistent within their company that they can look across all of the different places where they operate and start to calibrate their exposure and, and their risk appetite. That's right, Maria. We've really found that the companies we work with have hugely varying levels of knowledge about the social environments that they're operating in sometimes. and hugely varied levels of intelligence about how those environments are evolving, what drives levels of homophobia or other types of attitudes which companies will need to be sensitive to, things around gender, for example, labour rights, human rights more broadly. And they have varying levels of comfort when it comes to being able to assess comparatively how one social risk environment might compare to another and then to be able to intelligently decide how they're going to operate there and, and be able to respond to questions from shareholders, but also from their own people and from their consumers, their target audience around how they are living up to the values that they've set in the environments that they're operating in. So our social risk ratings are a way for companies to very quickly be able to assess relative levels of risk for countries right across the world and track them over time. And they're just one of the metrics which companies will need to use to be able to assess their overall exposure to ESG-related risks. Claudine, you bring up the question of metrics, which is, you know, I was talking about measuring progress and reporting, which are a really important part of this for companies. When it comes to metrics, for instance, some of the metrics companies are using, especially on social 
rights are around remuneration stats on a gender or ethnicity or, or country basis, career progression stats, again, usually around gender, but there are a number of different ways that you can measure that. They're looking at employee sentiment increasingly. And in some industry sectors, it's becoming increasingly important to measure kind of broader stakeholder sentiment. Those are indicators that you can measure progress against. When you consider what I was saying earlier around, you know, where your where a company may be failing to make very significant progress, some of that may be related to challenges that they're encountering in those environments. So for instance, if you're operating in a country where your ability as a company to enforce rights or the local cultural appetite for the types of, for instance, HR policies that you're implementing is less. And so your level of engagement may be a bit more challenged. It's important to have that point of reference when you're you know, reporting as a company where you're trying to make efforts and where they're successful or where they're a bit more challenged. You can use that also as a way then to prioritize where you put resources. Where are awareness campaigns around inclusion, around labor rights, around employee rights going to be most needed? And anticipating the challenges that you'll come across helps you to plan those initiatives so that they can be more effective. So there's a real interaction in terms of both kind of reporting, but also on the implementation side between the internal environment, the standards that you're setting as a company, the policies that you're setting as a company, and the external environment and the kind of challenges that you're facing with regards to that. Vincent, let's bring you back into the conversation here. Vincent, having surveyed the African continent, how much progress have they made on the ESG agenda? So companies that work you know, with, with very labor-intensive sectors or where there's a lot of interactions with security forces, I think they're the ones that the earliest have had to take a lot of attention to, to social risk issues and in particular issues around human rights. And so in sectors like extractives, for example, but also construction infrastructure, we have seen a body of best practice really develop for quite a few years now, really, and some really leading initiatives because, you know, of that dependency on human capital, on labor workforce and the risks, you know, to human rights that that represents. In some industries, we've also seen growing attention on, on supply chains. And I think perhaps one of the first ones was around mineral supply chains. And you know, that has attracted a lot of attention on downstream users of minerals. So we can think of tech companies, builders of ICT kit about the labor issues or the human rights issues where, you know, where minerals are sourced from. So there are like pockets of issues or themes where we have seen quite a lot of progress really over the last 10 to 20 years. Yeah, the last 10 to 20 years, longer even, a lot of investment into Africa was tied to large IFC financing. And with the performance standards, the IFC really set a high bar for social performance issues, including labor rights. And so, as Vincent said, where there's kind of quite a labor-intensive set of sectors in Africa, that's, that's garnered a lot of attention and a lot of development's been made over the years. But I think the change we've seen more recently has been companies moving to a really best-in-class approach to assessing, for instance, social performance specifically related to labor standards, really going and doing on-the-ground audits and monitoring performance in and around their operations in Africa, which is very encouraging. The standards that the International Labor Organization, the ILO, 
has published and some of the guidance in the SDGs are really useful points of reference. But ultimately, what's pushing the bar and what's moving this ahead is companies considering the value of, to put it quite crudely, but it's financial term, human capital as really an essential part of their own value chain. And that's something that increasingly can be quantified. So, you know, where there's quantification, there is a lot easier management approaches. And, you know, I think that's, that's really marking a turn in terms of how companies can engage with some of these issues in, in tricky environments like a number of African countries. Perhaps we've seen in the last few years is also, I think, a more concerted or sophisticated approach to building social value or bringing social value. You know, I think a lot of companies, particularly with quite heavy footprint type of projects, are now fully aware that, you know, they can't just come in with the approach of we are going to do, you know, whatever we do in our sector, we are going to pay taxes to the government and there will be a few community development projects on the side. I think, you know, there is an expectation to have something that is more concerted, that is more thought through, that also works in partnerships with local stakeholders, whether it's civil society groups, other public agencies that are working towards, you know, sometimes transparency, sometimes social development. But we are seeing, you know, from some of our clients, really a drive to do more than just, you know, run a project and, and pay into a government income through taxes. And I think that is a really positive step as well. It's really interesting, actually, that, you know, in one of the booming sectors in Africa right now, in ICT, the issue around access is a really important one for companies to consider with regards to value creation. And it's not sort of risk. It's more of an opportunity to get that right when companies are making an investment in really any part of the ICT sector. Investors are measuring all of this activity, too, aren't they? Absolutely. Investors are measuring this increasingly so. One of the things we've seen more and more from our investor clients is we're being asked to evaluate or assess the management teams of target companies. One part of that and a common theme across a number of regions is how is the management team considering diversity and inclusion, considering social rights more broadly? What is their capacity and capability to manage and mitigate issues like that? Investors are sort of, you know, leading the charge on the level of depth that we're getting into when it comes to companies assessing these issues. I think as Vincent and Maria have pointed out, companies are only beginning to grasp the full challenge of the ESG equation. Companies need help. In addition to the insights that we're trying to offer here, I'd like to bring one more article to your attention. It's called How Multinationals Can Help Advance LGBT Inclusion Around the World. It's on the Harvard Business Review's website. And if you're looking for search terms, try the authors David Glasgow and Karen Twaronite. The article was written in what seems like the prehistoric period now of August 2019. Before Claudine and I say goodbye, let's first say some thank yous. Vincent Rouget, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Claudine. Maria, it was fantastic to have you on the podcast. Do join us again in the future. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses 
by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.